Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. When the federal government announced the Emergencies Act earlier this week, a big part of it was going after money raised for the ongoing convoy protests. As of Wednesday afternoon, the border blockades in Coots, Alberta, and Emerson, Manitoba, have been cleared. But the three-week-long protest at Parliament Hill in Ottawa continues. So when it comes to these new financial powers from the Emergencies Act, what do they actually mean? And whose money's going to be targeted here? Freezing someone's account or halting a transaction, denying them basic financial services that are you know, something of a necessity, something you need to run your everyday life. I think that's something that the banks take very seriously, and I think uh, this feels like a pretty big upheaval for them. The Globe's banking reporter, James Bradshaw, is here to break this down and help us understand just how the government wants to follow the money to help end the protests. This is The Decibel. It's nice to have you on, James. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm a regular listener of yours. You've been doing an awesome job. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. That's really nice to hear. Good to finally have you on. So we've been hearing about the fundraising of of millions since the beginning of these protests, actually, prior to the announcement of the Emergencies Act. Um, Have banks been involved in, in the protests at all before this point? Not significantly, but there was one really important thing that happened in the lead up to the announcement of the emergency measures, and that was that... Uh, sometime in February, Toronto Dominion Bank, TD Bank, which is one of the largest banks in Canada, became aware through its own systems, its own regular monitoring, uh, that about $1.4 million uh, that had been donated in support of the demonstrations had landed in a couple of accounts at the bank. And a million of that was the first million dollars released by GoFundMe, the crowdfunding platform Mm -hmm. that had been raised uh, in support of the demonstrations. And then there was about $400,000 that was sent by about 3,000 donors through email money transfers, e-transfers. Um, and those funds got deposited in two personal accounts at TD. And TD pretty quickly got pretty uncomfortable about mm-hmm. that, uh, partly because of the connection, the, the source of those funds and the uh, controversy around these protests and blockades. But also because the funds have been put in a personal account. And when you have donated money, it's not really supposed to go to a personal account. There's not a lot of transparency about what will happen to it Mm. or how it gets spent. It should be in a business account registered for charitable purposes. So they effectively froze the money. They suspended the ability to withdraw money from those accounts. And on Monday morning, before the emergency measures had been announced by the government, they went to an Ontario court with an application that effectively asked the court, can you take control of these funds and decide what to do with them? Because TD said it wasn't equipped to do that properly. It it didn't have the information it needed to make a fair decision there. And it was later that day after they went to court that Minister Freeland and, and Prime Minister Trudeau stepped to the lectern and announced the emergency measures. Do we know how these measures came about? Or I guess, what do we know on that front, how how these measures were decided? So my reporting suggests that uh, the, the federal government has been at least testing the waters on giving banks broader powers for at least about a week. But I think it really came to a head more this past weekend. Uh, Minister Freeland and her deputy minister, Michael Sabia, arranged a call with the CEOs of the com- country's largest banks. Uh, to discuss this. 
And while I think that first call was was fairly high level in nature, you know, it was a, an effort to reach out and say, we need to find a solution to this. We know that the banks were briefed in, in broad strokes about what sort of measures were going to be introduced before they were announced publicly on Monday. And we know that because I started hearing from sources about some of the measures just before Minister Freeland stepped to the, the microphone to announce mm -hmm. them. Uh, we also know that another call was convened between the minister and the bank CEOs that evening, Monday evening around 8 p.m., uh, as a follow-up. And while we don't know a lot about what was discussed in that call, it's been pretty closely guarded, uh, we know it gave bank CEOs a chance to voice any concerns they still had about this. And we also know that by Tuesday, the following day, they were still guessing about a lot of the details on this. They were still in the dark about some of the finer details about how this would work. Uh, and I think that's something that is still being discussed and sorted out to this day. So help me understand this here. How big of a deal are these new powers for financial institutions? I think they're a very big deal. This is a very extraordinary thing. The banking sector is one that doesn't change a lot or change quickly by design. It's heavily regulated. It's meant to be stable. That's where the trust in the system comes from. And when you get something that happens very fast like this and that goes to something as essential as, you know, freezing someone's account or halting a transaction, denying them basic financial services that are you know, something of a necessity, something you need to run your everyday life. I think that's something that the banks take very seriously. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, this feels like a pretty big upheaval for them. So let's dissect this a little bit. So the, the announcement that came on Monday, uh, this was when the, the government announced they were invoking the Emergencies Act. Uh, and then Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Christia Freeland, she outlined three different powers that, that target finances here. So, so let's kind of break this down. The first one has to do with crowdfunding. As of today, all crowdfunding platforms and the payment service providers they use must register with FinTrack and they must report large and suspicious transactions to FinTrack. So, James, what does this mean? Well, this one is essentially an effort to close some gaps in uh, which kinds of companies have to register with and file reports to Canada's Financial Intelligence Agency, which is known as FinTrack. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to help spot financial crime by gathering lots of reports on suspicious financial activity from a huge range of financial institutions and companies. And it's supposed to look for things like money laundering and terrorist financing. And until now, crowdfunding platforms and some digital payments providers weren't required to file reports to FinTrack. And so the government wants to change that. They want to bring them under that umbrella. Um, and while most of the measures that were announced on Monday are temporary, this is the one the government actually wants to make permanent uh, through legislation and, and have it be kind of a, a permanent closing of a gap in the system that monitors these transactions. So that's a really interesting point. So in a way, like, is this, I guess, the, the government's trying to modernize this this legislation so that, I guess, newer forms of how we, we fundraise and how we deal with money, these are also kind of uh, caught up in, in these regulations. Is that fair? I think that is fair. I think uh, something that uh, the financial sector is grappling with constantly is the pace of change because of new digital players, new technologies, new entrants. And often they come in, you know, relatively unregulated and amass 
quite a lot of influence in the system, and they're not immediately captured by the kind of traditional structures that have existed to try and make sure that bad actors aren't doing, you know, the wrong things with money. But is now the, the time to actually do this using the Emergencies Act? Is now the time to bring this, this new standard in? The recent demonstrations and protests and, and blockades of border crossings and, and, and of uh, downtown corridors in the nation's capital have probably exposed a gap that um, had not uh, surfaced or, or become a priority uh, up until this point. And, and now it's shone a spotlight on that. So I think the emergency measures are a, a stopgap way to, to try and close that uh, gap in the short term. And then I think there's an understanding that this is probably something that should have been done before, just to make sure they're being as comprehensive as they can about how they monitor uh, suspicious activity. Let's move on to the, the second power that Freeland talked about on Monday. Second, the government is issuing an order with immediate effect under the Emergencies Act authorizing Canadian financial institutions to temporarily cease providing financial services where the institution suspects that an account is being used to further the illegal blockades and occupations. This order covers both personal and corporate accounts. We are direct James, how would, how would this actually work? Yeah, this is probably the most controversial provision. Um, it's a measure that obviously gives banks ability to cut off some pretty basic services. This is freezing accounts. This is blocking transactions. This is stopping making funds available to withdraw. And in terms of how it works, that's something banks have the power to do. But usually you would do that by going to a court. Uh, and in this case, they're going to have sort of more unilateral power to go ahead and just freeze these funds and to do it quickly. And I think it's become apparent to the government that that may be important here because going to court to freeze an account takes time and money moves in seconds. It moves very quickly in a digital age. Part of the way this is going to work is it's going to be through some of the regular monitoring and some of the uh, intelligence that's being built up about who is behind these protests, they're going to be looking for signals of where, you know, irregular amounts of money are flowing, large amounts are, of money are flowing, and they're going to be trying to target that uh, to freeze them quickly. What they've been granted is a certain immunity against being sued for doing that. As long as what they're doing is following this order, this emergency order, um, they're not going to be vulnerable to being sued by customers who might say, you're freezing my accounts improperly. Hmm, okay. Let's move on to the, the third power that uh, Christia Freeland outlined on Monday. And this one has to do with the sharing of, of information. Federal government institutions will have a new broad authority to share relevant information with banks and other financial service providers to ensure that we can all work together to put a stop to the funding of these illegal blockades. James, why is this important? I think this goes actually to one of the really key questions that remains here, which is how exactly do you decide who is going to be targeted by these emergency powers? Uh, on the one hand, one of the things they have said is that from now on, all the financial institutions under this order, which is a very wide range, when they discover that they've got accounts that are holding funds tied to these, uh, you know, acts that have been declared illegal, when they find out that they've got transactions they have to stop, they now have to report that to either the RCMP or CSIS, which presumably are going to be trying to keep a pretty comprehensive list of, of you know, who's been affected here and how the money was flowing. In the other direction, this 
new emergency order also gives pretty broad authority for the federal government and governments and their agencies, which could include law enforcement, to share information with financial institutions if it helps them carry out the order. And normally there are pretty strict rules around information sharing. People trust their banks because there are extraordinarily strict rules about what personal information a bank can share about them or their finances. All of these measures that we've been talking about, James, these are in the the Emergencies Act uh, that was invoked earlier this week. Just to clarify, can you remind us how long will these measures actually be in place for? Well, the Emergencies Act is invoked uh, initially with a 30-day authorization. So right now it's 30 days unless the government decided it wasn't needed before that. They can also go back and look to extend that. They can also go back to Parliament looking to make that longer. But we don't know for sure right now what date they will uh, cease to be in force. Who exactly are these measures meant to target then? I think mostly they are trying to go after those people who are kind of the linchpins of the flow of money and and the points at which it's being gathered and then dispersed again. What they don't seem to be as interested in is going after every individual person, the tens of thousands of people who've donated a couple of hundred bucks or even a few thousand dollars uh, to support this cause because they believe in it and they think it's you know a matter of free speech and, and the right mm-hmm. to protest. So an individual donor probably wouldn't need to worry. But I, I'm, I'm wondering about the situation of like, if I'm a protester who's been camped out in downtown Ottawa for the last three weeks, I'm really on the front lines of, of this movement. Would I need to be worried about my bank account being frozen? It's a really important question. I don't think it's entirely clear. The way the order that was released on Tuesday night was worded, It talks about people who are participating in activities that are blocking critical infrastructure or blocking vital trade corridors, and it even prohibits traveling to those sites. And so if you're spending time physically there, I think, you know, conceivably, you are you can be caught under this order. So there's a list of alleged donors who um, who donated to this this cause, and this list was released after after the the crowdfunding platform was was hacked. Um, and we should say just because a person's name was on the list doesn't necessarily mean that they donated, because you can put anybody's name down. But um, you know, having that list out there, might that list of names be used by banks to to target people involved in in these protests? I think there is a a good chance that that's going to be a source of information that either banks or at least the government and law enforcement agencies who may be trying to share information with them are going to turn to as a way of trying to identify this. Banks have pretty sophisticated systems and, and protocols set up to monitor for suspicious financial activity, even in normal times, to stop things like money laundering, terrorist financing, things like that. And... That can include things as simple as scouring, you know, public information sources and social media to try and figure out, you know, who's connected to which funds and and what kind of activity they're involved in. And so I think now that this is in the public domain, you know, it's it's not something they're going to ignore. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. so we've been talking about, you know, actual dollars and actual bank accounts and and, um, money flowing um, through organizers accounts to, to people further on. But I guess I wonder about currency that avoids these institutions entirely. Like, like what about cryptocurrency here? It's a very important piece of the puzzle. So 
Minister Freeland said in her remarks on Monday that this is intended to cover all kinds of transactions, including digital assets such as cryptocurrency. Hmm. That's part of the reason that they are looking at entities like crowdfunding platforms and payments providers, because they're trying to find the points where those digital assets are exchanged and bought and sold. What I think is also apparent is that this stuff is very hard to trace. It's, mm -hmm. it's built into it that it's supposed to be decentralized. It's supposed to be relatively anonymous. We know from past law enforcement activities around the world, it's not impossible to trace, but it is much harder. And from the people you've talked to from your reporting, James, how do banks feel about these new powers? So banks haven't said a great deal publicly. Uh, they've been very cautious and pretty quiet on this issue. And I think they have been trying to wait for the fine print that explains to them in, in more detail how this is going to work in the real world. Mm -hmm. Behind the scenes, my reporting suggests that banks and other financial institutions, they're not outraged. They're not uh, overly upset about this. They have some concerns, however. Uh, I think one of those initially was, was whether the legal cover they're being given not to be sued would be airtight enough. But I think there are also, uh, you know, questions that remain about how aggressive they should be about pursuing protesters, about how much that's supposed to be the bank acting on its own initiative and essentially adjudicating, you know, who has done something improper and have their accounts, should have their accounts frozen and, and who has not. You know, about what happens next. Uh, so, sure, we go ahead, we freeze a bunch of accounts, we halt a bunch of transactions. Do the customers then have a right to have that decision reviewed? Uh, when the emergency orders expired, do those accounts just get unfrozen and everybody goes back to normal? Or does there does a court process begin to charge people with financial crimes and, and decide whether or not that money should be returned? It's really not clear at this point. And so... I think there is a wariness banks have about the perception of overreach, uh, about targeting their own customers who, you know, generally they're trying to serve their customers' interests and protect their privacy. Uh, and I think they have to balance that with wanting to show the government that they are trying to be partners in, you know, something that has become a national crisis and, and wanting to do the right thing to stop activity that is illegal and to stop money from flowing to support that activity. And a lot of what we've we've talked up until this point, James, it's you know, it's it's fairly theoretical the, the way that, that we've been discussing this. But has this actually started to happen already? And, and how will we know if, if banks have started to to take these actions? I think what we know so far is mostly from the demonstrators themselves uh, revealing it. Mm -hmm. You know, there if you look around social media, you can see examples of people saying accounts have been frozen. Try this alternative route instead. But I think transparency is another big question here. It's not clear from the order that has been implemented, the emergency order, whether there is a, you know, a transparency requirement, a requirement for banks to report how many accounts they froze or how many transactions they blocked. To the extent that actions have been taken so far, that funds have been frozen or that accounts aren't working properly, it's also very difficult to tell whether that's because the emergency order has just come into force or whether banks were acting on their normal um, uh, surveillance powers to find suspicious transactions and, uh, and, and review them and, and if they think there's reasonable grounds to halt them. So mm -hmm. um, I think there's not a lot of clarity on that at this point. 
I realize that most of these powers are are meant to be temporary and, and financial institutions will will lose most of these powers when the Emergency Act is, isn't in effect anymore. Have you talked to anyone in the sector, though, who's raised concerns about the precedence that these new measures set? I think there is concern anytime something that feels unprecedented or feels extraordinary to the extent that these measures do is undertaken around a sector like the banking sector, which is so tightly regulated and controlled and monitored and and so focused on stability. And I think it goes back to really core questions. Um, You know, your financial activity tells a lot about you and it governs a lot of things you do in your everyday life. And the, to the extent that, you know, anything cracks the door open to uh, eroding that privacy or to curbing the ability you have to, to access financial services and, and live a normal financial life, I think everybody involved wants to be enormously careful about that because it's, it's a huge step and it could have a huge impact on, on people's lives. What you're balancing that with is to say, we are going to have for a short period of time some extraordinary measures that allow us to move quickly to put heavy pressure on a small number of people and entities without having to resort to something like force in order to clear these blockades and, and, you know, and bring a peaceful end to these protests. James, thank you so much for, for speaking with us today. This is important to understand. It was great to be here. Thanks for having me. Later on Wednesday, after James and I spoke, The Globe reported that the RCMP asked cryptocurrency exchanges to stop trading for accounts connected to the protests. Police also issued orders to protesters in Ottawa on Wednesday, telling them to leave immediately. Okay, that's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovic is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.